0: And speaker Graham Cowan. Graham is the author of four books, including the internationally acclaimed Back from the Brink, which has a testimonial from the former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair and has also just become a bestseller in China. Uh, In the year 2000, Graham actually went through a five year episode of depression that his psychiatrist described as the worst he had ever treated. Uh, He emerged from that crisis with a very different view, though, about how we can increase our resilience, mood, and performance. And this is the essence of his message in his books and his speaking today and a a big part of what he shares about on today's episode. Uh, Graham was actually part of starting the RUOK movement back in 2009 and he's still an active board director. So I'm sure you'll find this conversation very interesting. Graham shares uh, openly about his struggles and what he has done to overcome them and how he still stays mentally sharp today. So on to today's conversation.
1: Hey, folks, you're
2: on the Insecurity Project with Jamin. I've got the privilege of interviewing Graeme Cowan today. Graeme, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Jamin. I'll be here.
2: Well, it's always such a treat to get to have conversations like this with fascinating people who've done some amazing stuff in the world. So, uh, you know, your bio, the things you've achieved are, are quite remarkable and some of the obstacles that you've overcome internally and externally, and so i uh, really fascinated to unpack some of that. But uh, the place that I begin with all my guests is back to the beginning. Um, I'm always fascinated by uh, where you began and, and what it was like growing up in your home, and, and particularly the role your parents played in shaping your beliefs about yourself as a child. Uh, so, yeah, care to tell us a bit about uh, yeah, your childhood and, and your parents?
1: Yeah, sure. I grew up in a um, a lovely country town called Taree, which is on the New South Wales north coast. It's um, about three hours north of Sydney now. And uh, it was a great-sized town. I think at that time, at that stage, it was about ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 people. And, um, you know, it was a a time when, you know, we were able to just really freely roam around the town after school. You know, I, it was a standard approach where I'd come home from school you know, Mum would have some great cakes in the in the cake, pit, have a few of those and then get yeah. on the bike and uh just cycle all over the place. So I think that's um you know, probably a real element of, of that um childhood was that there was lots and lots of freedom and uh we literally were able to, you know, roam around the town and just come home when the sun <laughs> Sun went down, so it was uh, longer days in summer, shorter in winter but um you know that led to great times catching up with mates and friends on the river, and all that sort of thing. Um, my parents were always very uh community minded um, you know both my mother and father were involved in lots and lots of community projects, including you know the church and um, apex rotary and uh you know I, I was very fortunate i had a very um I, I was one of five i was the oldest of five kids and um they were and i i have to say i guess particularly my mother were were our greatest champions you know always really encouraging us always um stressing us to uh um try new things um and we did some quite remarkable things like uh You know, I'm I'm 60, so, you know, when I was growing up, like, 15, that's 45 years ago, um, you know, for example, my parents um, bought one of the first um, package holidays to Asia. And, you know, 45 years ago, it was very, very unusual to go to Asia. I was certainly the first of my peer group to go. And, uh, you know, learned some amazing things, got a real love of travel. And also at 17, I was encouraged to become a Rotary Exchange student to Canada, so spent 12 months of the year living over in Canada and the US. So, yeah, you know, great, secure uh, childhood and a real encouragement to, um, you know, to adventure. (laughs) It was great. Wow, what a gift. Yeah, it was a real gift. Very, very lucky. And I know, you know, I I know how lucky I am because um, in the work I do now, I know many people didn't have that sort of start. So I do realise how lucky I was.
2: Yeah, sure. And obviously that start is a great gift. And, and it's, um, you know, as you see with people as well as I do, um, there are people who have great starts that don't go on and use it and people who have terrible starts that go on and do wonderful things. So, um, definitely, you know, we're, definitely. we're not victims of our experience, obviously, but it's always fascinating to see where a person starts and what, what things were easier for them and what things were hard. Um, Because I'm sure that set you up for a lot of great things and uh, put some really beautiful things inside you about your capacity. But um, as you grew older, what what was your first kind of experience around challenge? Like when you ventured out on your own and started exploring the world uh, yourself without your parents' leadership, what's your first recollection of the stuff that was hard?
1: Um, Yeah, well... The two are, I guess, somewhat related because I came down to university in Sydney, um, and you know, in in <laughs> country Tauri, I was a big fish in a little pond. I was a right. successful rugby league player and and um, and cricket player, and then I went overseas to Canada as a Rotary Exchange student. You were, you know, you were special because you're an Aussie and had Canadian yeah. school for a year, and um, you know, I played Canadian football and did well at that and. And then I came down to the university. I was at the University of New South Wales. And it was quite a culture shock, really, because, you know, suddenly you were a fish in a very big pond. And, um, you know, I, I hadn't realised, it, but I think a lot of my self-esteem had been built up around, you know, standing out, doing well. And it, it really hit me a bit. In fact, I had my first real episode of depression. Um, I think it was the end of the second year. At university, and um it was a bit of a shock to the system because uh yeah you know i I've been used to doing well, being on top of things, and um I really struggled and I, and I didn't know it was depression back then, um you know right. was, you know we're talking forty odd years ago, but um I got over it sort of spontaneous but, but spontaneously, but it definitely was, and uh yeah, so you know it was a shock going from that. You know, place where you were secure, were doing really well to sort of standing on your own two feet.
2: Yeah. So looking back on it now, are you able to kind of deconstruct some of the inner dialogue that was happening for you when you were, you know, gone from the big fish, uh, small. So big fish, little pond to small fish, big pond, and what it made you believe about yourself that that may have led to some of the the pain around depression and anxiety at that point in your life.
1: Yeah. I think. I think. um I had consciously or subconsciously done a lot of comparison sort of thing, and um mm. you know, when I was living um you know that life in a small country town, um you know you compare yourself with others and you're doing very well, you know you're all sure were doing well, but then you know you come down to university and used to being a very good student in your country high school and suddenly you're a very average student in a in a university and um yeah. And likewise, from a sport perspective, you know, so suddenly, you know, you're in a place where they play first grade rugby league and, um, you know, it's, it's a whole different ball game. So I think I realised that I had made lots of comparisons and they were favourable in a small country town and uh, a lot yeah. less favourable when you're comparing yourself with, you know, three million people in Sydney. Wow, isn't that interesting?
2: <laughs> um Okay, so so what happened next? That was kind of your first experience of depression, but you said you kind of got over it spontaneously as well. Um, did you you know what did you unpack a bit of the journey from there, going through uni and, and
1: beyond? Yeah, well, I got through uni in the end. You, did, you know, did fine, um, and I did marketing, and I ended up getting a job with uh, Johnson and Johnson. So I worked in and I was with the uh, medical division. So I worked with them for a period of time um, and, uh, you know, enjoyed that. I was working in sales and then marketing. And um, and then I made a move, I think I was about 24, to a division of Pfizer. And I was really fortunate to have a great boss there. And um, he always treated you one level higher than you were (laughs) which is uh, a a great quality you know like I remember you know I I joined there after coming from J&J and I think j and J, I'd um, you know I I, I had a car and I had had a country uh, trip but I'd never done you know uh, plane trips for work and I think within you know day two um Jack said, Look, I'd like you to go down to Tasmania, a conference call me down there. And uh, you know, just first I thought, Oh god, I can't do that. I've never done anything like that before but you know, I sort of thought, Well, if he believes I can, maybe I can and um yeah. anyway, so, you know, I ended up putting a lot of work into it and, you know, pulled off a pretty good pretty good um pretty good result and it was a, a great lesson I guess of good leadership where you know, they treat you one level above what you are. And if you are given that uh, faith and um, that autonomy, you know, you can rise to it. And uh, so that was a, a really good experience. And then my wife and I at the time, uh, we were on this big career jobs. I was, I, I'd been at J&J about two years and five, about three. Then we took a big world trip, travelled for about a year around the world. Wow. Um, oh, yeah. You know, went to lots and lots of, I think we went to about 38 countries on the trip. It was a wonderful, wonderful adventure, and uh, came back. and um, I rejoined uh, Johnson & Johnson actually, but on the consumer side of the business, and um, had a really great experience there as well. And then I made a, I guess, a career move into recruitment. And uh, you know, I'd been successful in sales and marketing, and then I moved into marketing and recruitment and. It was a little bit like before in that I'd gone from this place where I was doing really well to going into a new field, a new occupation, and even though that was related because I was recruiting marketing people in the healthcare sector. You know, it was I hadn't done it before, uh, and I felt this, you know, again, real insecurity that I wasn't thriving, and um, yeah, you know, that caused uh, another episode of depression, which this time was was diagnosed.
2: Yeah right. Um, how long ago
1: was that? That was. Uh, well, it's probably up around about thirty at the time. So that's probably about thirty years ago. 30 yeah, years. yeah, sure. Just,
2: mm-hmm. Um, so you said that was diagnosed. So then that was a, a longer running experience with depression a time through.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was a really really bad time actually because I actually I I was so desperate and I sort of know what the, what depression was. I actually made uh a suicide attempt being left in the hospital oh, for about wow. two weeks and I kept the whole thing secret um because I was so ashamed of it, didn't tell anyone. Wow. Um got a good doctor, got on medication and went back to work without anyone really knowing. And um but uh yeah, so that was my first really serious attempt, um, you know, episode and it was the first time I was ever formally diagnosed. With depression um but you know then I went on to you know a successful career in recruitment but uh, wow. but uh, you know I still often and maybe this comes back to your theme about insecurity, I still was really unhealthily comparing myself to other people like you know I'd be looking yeah. I remember at the time I'd be looking in the in the financial review and see some guy just become the CEO of a um uh, an ASX company at twenty eight and um you know I'd be you know mid thirties at that time and I'd have like, this profound sense of failure because I wasn't the CEO of an ASX company. Just stupid stuff. You know, just really yeah, stupid yeah. stuff. But 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 it, you know it has a very, very unhealthy uh impact on you know your feelings, your mood, your feeling of self worth. Uh so yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah well so obviously uh you know your uh you know challenge with depression and long running data with that would have led you to look in all kinds of places to try and solve that and to be able to function efficiently in the world. Um, what did you come to understand about the belief structure behind that and the way to kind of solve that apart from comparison and apart from you know external means? What, tell us some of the things that you discovered that have, have worked for you to um, lead you out of that depression long term
1: yeah well so as i mentioned i worked very successfully in recruitment and culture change and career planning and um i was leading a business that um, was a management consulting firm that focused on e-commerce and it was a booming business back in 2000 and, and then it collapsed and i i went through at that point then with you know, absolutely horrendous episode which lasted for five years. Um, oh, wow. You know, I took I took lots of medications. I had shock therapy or ECT, suicide attempts, hospitalizations. Um and then you know I began a slow turnaround, which I guess gets to you know your real core of your question. And I think the thing that I just really I started to just walk and walk regularly. I was off work for five years, didn't work for five years. Wow. And um, and then eventually through that walking and lifting my mood, I reconnected with old friends and family and picked up my well being um again. And and then I got into meditation and that was a really important component. Um and I you know been a regular meditator every every day since. And and then the final thing was really deciding to do something about it. And that was writing my first book, Back in the Brink. And um, so this is where I interviewed well-known Australians who'd been through a really tough time and how they came out of it. And yeah, that really gave me a sense of purpose. It really gave me, um, you know, I thought I was working on something bigger than myself. And that really helped, you know, pull me out of it. it wasn't a overnight success. It wasn't overnight recovery, but it not being a very successful book. You know, The bestsellers in Australia sold about 5,000 copies. I sold over 30,000 copies of that book, and when it was launched, I interviewed people like ex-Olympian swimmers and former premiers of uh, West Australia and famous artists who'd gone through tough times, and it led to lots and lots of publicity. I did about 200 million interviews over a period of six weeks, it was, um, wow. you know, quite amazing. But, you know, getting back to the core of what I found was um, really important. And uh, there's a very old show, which probably not many people will see, but you probably see it now on YouTube. It's called The Six Million Dollar Man. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound like very much now, but in essence, it was like yeah. this guy played by an, act- an actor lead major who crashed and burned, and so they rebuilt him. And you know, yep. with robot parts and all these things, and made it better, stronger. And I really, I really see that as an analogy for rebuilding myself because you know, I really look deep and I looked a lot into, um, you know, as recruitment, I looked a lot at psychological tests and values and strengths and all that sort of stuff. And so I really thought to understand the core of me. You know, what what were my strengths? What was I good at? And in conjunction with that, I also really decided that I was, after three outcomes in my life, i call this the, the three blasts of the world being. <laughs> and that's vitality. You know, the outcome of me is vitality. So that comes from, you know, our physical energy, our conscious, contra- you know, our, our... So it's like good exercise, good rest. Good nutrition. The second yep. output was intimacy. So these are quality, supportive, caring relationships where you can really be authentic and speak with some people about anything and have a good group of people you can do that with. And then, the third blast of well being is prosperity. And that's your contribution to the outside world. That can be, you know, via the work you do, it can be via your contribution via a charity, and you know, as you may know, I was involved in stating, are you okay, um, yeah, yeah. and you know, got a huge impact with that. But, but what I say to people is that, okay, vitality, intimacy, prosperity, VIP, you're a VIP, and for you to make a proper contribution to the world, you really have to have good insight, and to do these things that are good for you, because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't help other people. You can't contribute to other people. And I think, you know, getting into that understanding, that self-assessment, you know, realising that being my true self and being my best self was the key to a wonderful life. And, you know, if you had asked me at the time about that five years of depression, you know, I would have said, oh, my God, that was the worst thing. wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Well, yep. you know, now... I now say that it was a gift because it forced yeah. me to look at my priorities. It forced me to really um, put in place practices that help ensure that I do have a good life. You know, I, I when I had that breakdown, my first marriage broke down, and I'm with a, a wonderful woman now. We have an amazing, amazing, fulfilling life. She works in cancer research. I work in, you know, helping build... Caring, more resilient, and more growth-oriented teams, and but we just, you know, we just get a lot from each other, learn a lot from each other, and we feel we make a, a sense of contribution, and and really have a an attitude of service, and I think that's the the core to um, to getting over insecurity. Now, I didn't um, call what I went through insecurity, but but it basically was what I said I, I had. And what I believe now was a, a real contributor to my depression. I'm not saying it's the only thing. It was a yeah. crisis of the confidence. I think I was chasing the wrong things.
2: Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I thank you for sharing that. And and this is why I find these conversations so beautiful and valuable is because you found a way out. Like you had to dig into the depths of your own being and pull yourself out of that. There was no one else who had the power to do that for you. And that yeah, that's the hero's journey right there, which is ext- extraordinary. And when you do, and as you emerge, you emerge with something of value, something beautiful that, that lives far beyond you and makes a meaningful contribution to the world. And so I think my uh, intention around having conversations with people like you who have done amazing things is to really make sure that I deconstruct as, as much as possible the things that you did differently um and so so a couple of questions if I might just dig a little deeper into how you did that was you talked about the kind of the first season of your life was big on comparison and while comparison worked really well for you to start because you compared and you came out favorably because you were the best that you could see and then when there were others who were better, you came out unfavorably because were, you weren't the best that you could see. Um, and those seasons of in the workforce, you know, trying to compare yourself and looking at CEO of Fortune 500 or, you know, ASX listed. Um, so, you know, the old idea of just don't compare yourself to others. Like, we all know that. We all know you're not supposed to compare. But how do you think, looking back, you were able to stop making that, the reference point. How did you actually get out of comparing yourself to others and focus on
1: you being you? Well, in my case, it led to profound depression and a shitty, shitty life. <laughs> Excuse the the pun. And uh, so, you know, it was that. I guess that socialisation that it didn't get me anywhere. And yeah. um, because there would always be people, you know, richer. Um, yep. <laughs> More yep. successful than you in, in, in terms of that thing. But here's the thing that I've really learned, gentlemen, is that you have no idea what's going on in other people's lives. And I've learned this since mm. I've told my honest story because people tell me their story. And, you know, you can see what looks to be the most amazing person, you know, great job, happy marriage, but then you know, you find out that there's domestic violence going on in the home or, or you know, they've got a, um, a profoundly handicapped child. You just never know what's going on in other people's lives. So, you know, you think you might be able to do comparisons, but you're not comparisoning the full picture. <laughs> and uh, yeah. if you don't have the full picture, there's no no use doing comparisons. Comparisons don't lead to productive things anyway. You know, I think the only thing you need to compare yourself with is, really yourself, you know, am I better today than I was to yesterday? You know, am I better self? Am I a better parent or a better partner than I was yesterday? And it's not a straight line, you know, we all have our ups and downs, we all have lots of things, but, you know, I think just sort of striving, what I call going for the growth zone, going a little bit out of your comfort zone each day to try and be a little bit, to try and learn a bit more, that's central to having a great life. That's mm-hmm. central to having a really secure life.
2: Yeah, So good. Thank you. That's a great insight. Um, okay, another question. So you mentioned that meditation was a key part of the process in, in reinventing yourself and becoming the $6 million man. Uh, so why <laughs> does, in your mind, why does meditation work? What What is so useful and powerful about meditation as you understand it?
1: There's many different types of meditation there. The the, the type that I sort of adapted was, um, American, uh, sorry, an Indian spiritual group called the Brahma Kamaris. And it's a spiritual meditation. And so I think, I think no matter what form of meditation you look at, the really, um, huge impact is, I guess, being able to get a stillness each day and, uh, you know, being able to be really centered and to be able to really think quite well about what's important. Not, you don't, you okay. don't have to deliberately think about that, but just by being quiet, I think you have that sort of uh, insight. So that's been the really, um, I think, important element to me. It just helps to um, still the mind. It helps me to also have very good um, perspective. You know, I'm, I'm quite good at being able to, I guess, have the helicopter view um, and just look at the bigger picture. So I think they're probably, for me, the big element. So a stillness, a piece of mind, but also perspective.
2: Yeah, right. I I, uh, read recently the head of Harvard personal behaviour or human behaviour, the chair of one of those facets of of Harvard psychology. He said that, in his mind, the most important aspect of personal development is what he calls the subject-object switch, um, which is, you know, when you're in your own head, stuck in your own thoughts, um, seeing the world just through your own eyes, you're in the subject, subjective frame.
1: The objective
2: yeah. is to get outside your own head, outside your own story, and then, as you just described, have the perspective, the helicopter view, and then from that viewpoint, you are able to see what is important and what's not. And, cause, you know, because I think you're right, like that. The noise and chaos that happens in our thinking, and and when you identify with that thinking and feed that thinking, just you know all kinds of crazy thoughts that happen in any one moment. So the stillness, I you know I think what you're describing is what he's describing. It's just this ability to go stop, be still, get out of your own head, and that one thing makes such a massive difference to every area of your life. Gives you the clarity, stillness, and gives you perspective. So that's interesting that you say that as well.
1: Mm. yeah, couldn't agree more
2: um, Great, so the intimacy piece you said, that was one of your your VIP Vitality, Intimacy and Purpose um, so intimacy that's an interesting word to use for that because I think around intimacy in terms of your primary relationship, i.e. a romantic relationship but you're saying that um, having deep relationships where you can share um, anything and be open and honest is a really, really important part of of well-being, so uh, again, that's all, all well and good to say that. I think everyone would love to have great quality relationships, but how? How did you go about cultivating deep-seated relationships um, when you know so much of the way we do relationships today is very superficial and you know very very lightweight and doesn't make space for those deep, real conversations? How how did you com- cultivate intimacy in a
1: broader group of yeah. friends? Yeah. Well, the definition of you know we do tend to think of it as as meaning between you know partners, husband and wife, and that sort of thing, but it's the actual definition is close near out of parity and uh, or friendship and um okay. you know and again, it was just really reflecting on my life when I went through that you know six million dollar phase six million dollar man phase, and I thought, well, yeah. you know, who were the great people that were in my life and actually Thought about, for example, a guy that I'd grown up um, in uh, Tarry with, who in year ten left Tarry and went away and was actually living up in Cross Harbour now. And but we've been great, great friends as kids and also, you know, up until year ten. Anyway, so I managed to reach out to him again, and um, we we got on great, you know, right from the start, and. or restart is a bit of a way to term it. And, you know, I just make, made a special effort to, um, you know, stay in contact with those people regularly. So, you know, on my phone, on my favourite list, uh, all the people, what I call your green zone tribe. And so central to the work I do in resilience is a moodometer. And the green zone is when you're positive, it's when you're energetic, it's where you're optimistic, it's where you're resourceful. And so I think, who are the people that are good for me? When I spend time with them, I feel better when I walk away. There's plenty of people we spend time with that we feel drained when we spend time with them. But, you know, really thinking about who are my Green Zone tribe that I give good advice. You might not talk about all subjects with those people. You know, the occasional few where you might talk about, you know, family, friends, life, everything... But there might be others that you just, you know, talk about work, or just about relationships, or just about footy, or whatever. But just thinking, who are those people that are good for you? And it doesn't take a lot of people. But I have got a, a, a list, and every Sunday, I think, okay, who on this list am I either going to catch up for a coffee with, or a beer after work, or wow. I just have a phone call to make a difference? And every week, that every week, not, not all of them. You know, but, but yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, sure. there might be there might be two that I, I I make an effort every week to catch up with, and I think that is gold because I tell you what, like about 18 months ago, I had a a setback, a mental health setback. I've been well for for um, 10 years, but I was busy, frantic, and you know, lost my meditation practice for a while, and I crashed and burned again, got really bad uh, stress, anxiety, right. but I was able to reconnect with this group and say, look, I've blown it. Like I uh, you know, I'm not in great shape. I wanna let you know. If you want to help, just ask me to go for a walk on a regular basis. That'd be really helpful. And you know, just go for the walk with them allowed you to have chats, allowed you to get back on track. And um, you know, that's when you that's when it pays off to have this green zone tribe with you because, you know, there you're scaffolding, um, and that's what we're saying, are you okay as well you need your scaffolding around for when the storms do come and you know, you can't hold yourself up. You need yourself or, or other other things to you know, to keep you up. You need to consciously think about always having and building scaffolding because it's not a matter of if it will come, it will come at one stage. <laughs> That's a fact of life. Yeah. And so investing in having those people around you is um, is is uh, central to a, a really good life. And I think the ultimate test of this, Jarman, um, is, is something called the Harvard Grant Study, the longest wellbeing study ever done. They followed the same group of men for over uh, 75 years, it, it, and it was only men at Harvard starting back in 1929. Yeah. Now, all the terabytes of information, the one thing that comes through for a long life, a healthy life, an affluent life, the, the thing that makes the difference is those that have warm and caring and supportive relationships. Um, that's the mm. differentiator from all the, the terabytes they have. So it's critical to a great life and also a very secure life.
2: Mm. Well, wow, that's great. Um, it turns out the end and, and I'll, let me just ask you one more question About the purpose. Um, no, you said not purpose. You said um, the P stands for uh, prosperity. Prosperity. Yep. But your distinction was that prosperity comes through your contribution. So that's an interesting distinction r- right there because, you know, most people think of prosperity in terms of what they can get for themselves. But you're saying to live a prosperous life is about what you can give. So do you want to just unpack that a little?
1: Yeah, what I mean by pro- prosperity is you magnify your impact. Um, okay. And so, and, you know, that could be, you know, it could be financially, but I also think of it in... A much broader context as well, and "Are You Okay?" is a wonderful example of that. Like my my um, purpose, I, I, I talk about is helping you know people be more part of caring and mentally healthy and growth oriented teams. Now, whether that's in your home or in your work or whatever, it, it it doesn't really matter. So, so I apply that in my work. but I also apply it very much in the concept of "Are You Okay?" And, you know, our founder of AUOK okay was a guy called Gavin Larkin. And Gavin tragically passed away from cancer in 2011, but he had lost his father to suicide. And, you know, the idea of AUOK okay is quite simple, but the tagline is brilliant. And the tagline is, a conversation could change a life. And I believe that that is a core element of why it's been successful, because there's a, a purpose to it. You know, everyone's reminded they can have a conversation that could change their life they could be on the receiving end of a conversation that could help their life and help change their life substantially so that sense of purpose that sense of contribution i believe then just allows you to take it to the next level
2: yeah okay excellent that's very useful thank you Okay, you've written a couple of books yourself. Uh, I imagine you've read a few books over the years. Are there any books in particular that you recommend to others, specifically around this concept of self-esteem and and overcoming insecurity and and being a secure individual? Yeah, um, there's a very,
1: a, a very um, there's a, a book by Jonathan Fields called the The Good Life Project, and yeah, that has been um, Really good insights. Um, he talks about you know three different components of life as well, and there's a bit of overlap in what I talk about as well. Those came out from different directions, but that's really good. Another, an amazing book that um, many people talk about, but if you haven't read it, I really recommend it. Viktor Frankl's book *Man's Search for Meaning*, which is all about you know discovering purpose and how important purpose is in really yeah, really, really volatile times. And then I guess the third one is a book by Professor Christine Ness called Self-Compassion. And it shows, her work shows, that self-compassion has all the upside of self-esteem and none of the downside. So some of the downside of self-esteem, there's things like narcissism. Self-compassion is just being kind to yourself, (laughs) cutting yourself some slack. And I think we can often be our own was critic. I certainly was. You know, that whole comparison thing, that was uh, all about you know not being kind to myself. And uh, so that would they would be the three that I would recommend okay. on the subject.
2: Fantastic. I'll make sure they're in the show notes. Um, okay, great. Is there anything else that you think we've missed that you think would be useful to share out of your own journey personally, and what, or what you teach others uh, about this subject of overcoming insecurity?
1: Well, yeah, I I think it really comes down to what I call, um, you know, the the care crew. And what a care crew is, is where there is self-care and you care for others. And, you know, making time to be kind to yourself really enhances your capacity to be kind to other people and to be caring for other people. And, yeah. you know, if if you can tap into that, if you can, can um, be kind to yourself, but also really try to be kind to other people, whether it's in work or it's in your home life, it just yields an amazing result. And so just the mantra I, I try to, you know, just repeat to myself every day is to be caring, be helpful and go for the growth zone. And whether that applies to yourself or to others, I I, I just find that a really great way for nurturing um, my sense of self, my sense of contribution, and um, and feeling feeling okay about myself.
2: Excellent. Um, what do you mean by the growth zone?
1: Um, this is the growth zone. Is going outside your comfort zone yeah. and. You know, trying new things, doing things. And, and you've done this, gentlemen. You know, you went from being a pastor to doing what you're doing now. You know, that's a perfect example of, you know, the growth zone. Trying new things where you're going to fall over, get a bloody nose, but you forgive yourself. You said, well, good on you for trying. Well done. Yeah, You know, let's <laughs> try again tomorrow. And uh, so it's just a determination to not see, not to see Failure is failure, but just really is an opportunity to sort of learn and ultimately to grow. And um, the work in the workplace on on psychological safety and what they call uh, the growth zone, the best teams, you know, support each other, encourage each other to take risks. If they don't work out, they support each other again and they learn from it. And yeah, when right. teams are in that, when teams are in that zone, they call it the growth zone um hmm. rather than the stress zone or you know the anxiety zone sort of thing so it's, it's definitely a much better place to be
2: yeah great i've got to ask you about that
1: thank you for clarifying
2: uh okay so where can people find you where do you hang out online uh if people are interested in your work honestly more about are you okay day uh, the books you've written where's the best place
1: to find you uh, probably the best place to connect with me is on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time on there, publish a lot of articles, share a lot of um share a lot of content. So definitely a great way. Um, and uh, you know, in terms of the work I do in terms of workshop speaking, you'll see details from that on, on GrahamCowan.com dot um, and the books I have about helping people to bounce back depression, bounce back from diversity. Um, and my Back From The Brink books. They can be found at iambackfromthebrink.com. Excellent.
2: I'll make sure those links are in the notes so I can find you easily. Uh, I appreciate your time and your kindness in sharing very personally, and there's been some wonderful insights. So thank you very much, Graeme.
1: My pleasure. Lovely to be with you.
0: Now, I hope you really enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Uh, For those of you who've been following my work for a while, uh, I've put out the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity. Uh, I'm convinced that insecurity can be overcome and not just masked, managed or avoided. Uh, But I think people who throughout time have found a way to show up to life unhindered have done so a certain way, there are keys that each of them have used, and so my work has been to compile these ideas and and make sense of the stuff that's worked and, and deconstruct key ideas so they can be used and reproduced so look that's available on my website um, I'm particularly interested in having conversations about overcoming insecurity for entrepreneurs and even more particularly thirty five to forty year old entrepreneurs. I just think entrepreneurs have got skin in the game. They have such a desperate need to solve this problem because it's all them showing up in the world solving problems. So it's good for the world to have entrepreneurs uh, at their best where it matters most. So if that's you, uh, love to have a conversation. Jump on my website, have a look at the seven essential practices and take the online assessment just to see how you measure up against these seven practices and how well you're doing and uh, I'd love love to have a conversation with you if you think it could be helpful. I'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The Insecurity Project. I hope you found the content and conversations useful. And remember, you are not just the actor in the story, you are the storyteller. You have the ability to turn this all around. For more information about overcoming insecurity, check out theinsecurityproject.com.